Welcome to the Player Layer Podcast, where we talk about board games and game design. I'm your host, Ivan Alexiev, and today I'm very excited to have on Keith Mateka from Thunderworks Games. He's worked on a ton of games, including Roleplayer, Cartographer's A Roleplayer Tale, Bullfrogs, Dual Powers, and now Roleplayer Adventures, which he calls his magnum opus. He walks us through his own design process, as well as his experiences with Kickstarter, manufacturing, and publishing. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. I am here today with Keith Mateka from Thunderworks Games. Uh, you probably know him from Roleplayer, Cartographers, uh, Bullfrogs was his first Kickstarter, and he's a very successful <laughs> uh, game designer and publisher. <laughs> Keith, uh, could you tell me a little bit about your background in, in gaming and game design? Uh, lifelong gamer. You know, I played a lot of games when I was a kid. I worked in the video game industry for 15 years. And at some point while I was working on video, you know, video games, I made the decision to try to design one. So my love for board games had a real big, like, kind of uh, resurgence uh, when I moved to a new town and I was looking for something social to do and uh, to meet some some people. And, and I and I got uh, one of those things was the idea was that, like, I could you know find some of these cool board games and play them with, with other people. There was kind of three things that happened. One, I had a friend come and visit me from out of town and he was from he's from Puerto Rico. And he's like, hey, I heard about this game called Puerto Rico. I don't know anything about it, but I'm Puerto Rican, so I want to play it. Um, so then we went to the shop, picked it up, sat down, and learned it and played it like five times over the weekend. And that was like my introduction to Euro games. And then I got together with some buddies, and they were, um, you know, we were we played D&D together back in college, and we sat down to play again. And it had been quite a few years. And, and uh, basically, you know, my life experience had changed. So, like, I didn't have... 12 hours to sit down and play D&D like I did when I was in college. And like I was frustrated by kind of the length of that experience. Um, so then after some Googling, I found like Descent, the first version of Descent and, and, and Arkham Horror. So like kind of very thematic games that, that, I, that I thought might be able to replace that, that RPG experience for me that I could do uh, in less time. Now, it turns out that Descent 1 takes just about as much time as it is as those old D&D sessions because that can be a very long game but that's kind of my introduction to those games and then I was just looking for uh, people to to kind of meet in my new town so um, I started getting like super into board games I used to play uh, board games and card games at lunch with my friends at college or sorry at uh, at the video game developer that I worked at um, but we would play glory to Rome at lunch hour for like every day for um, months probably three or four months straight Anyway, uh, and one day we're just like, hey, we work at a video game developer. Um, we know how to make these kind of games. Like, how hard could it be able to make, you know, these these other card games? So we just started dabbling in design, and um, I just kind of, uh, I took to it and just kind of got a game to where I thought it was in a, in a good shape. And I saw this new thing called Kickstarter emerging, um, and I saw guys like Jamie Stegmeier being super successful there. But surprisingly sharing all of his tips and tricks and his experiences with other people. And, you know, in my my arrogant ignorance, I said, that doesn't seem so hard. 
I could probably do that. So so then I, I, I put together my first Kickstarter project, and then which was that game called Bullfrogs. You know, it was successful. I learned a lot about a lot of things on that project, for sure. And then it just kind of came to that point where, like, well, what's next? And then I started uh, looking at other games, you know, working on new games of my own, and then also looking at games from other other designers. And, like, and it just kind of snowballs from there. At some point, Thunderworks became successful enough in which I decided I could, I, I could do it full time. So then um, I kind of quit my my day job and and now i do this thing full time yeah and working at your uh, day job working on video games you worked at raven yeah. software right yeah yeah uh, so um the first part of my career i, I kind of only had two big uh, video game jobs one was at a game publisher called konami digital entertainment uh working on games like silent hill and you know smaller things like frogger and i worked on a lot of music games and their their singing line i have a i have a background i have a bachelor's in music so that's kind of how i got connected to that stuff yeah so do i actually um, yeah <laughs> i am i got I, classical uh double bass <laughs> yeah i i have a i majored with on the double bass but the emphasis was uh, music recording um but it was to get the re- recording degree at this traditional university you also had to have a you know a traditional music degree so uh as as an electric bass player i basically went into college in, into the university with like never really have played the instrument that I was majoring on and like having very little experience uh, reading music as well, which was like a big piece of that. So, you know, I I took my six semesters of theory and music history and piano and, and, but I also got to spend some time in the recording studio. But then as soon as I like got into the real world and started working in a recording studio, I realized I hated that job and I had a bunch of bills that I needed to pay. So um, I got a job testing video games, and the first game I worked on was a PlayStation 2 game called Frogger the Great Quest, which was awful. But um, I worked on many awful games. I worked at Konami in California, and then um, after, I think, seven years, I moved over to Raven Software in Madison, Wisconsin, which is where I live now, um, and that's on the developer side. So I got to see kind of both sides of that the publishing slash development side of the, the, the equation there, so... Yeah, no, I worked at Raven Software in production, so that means that I'm, like, doing project management. Um, there was times when I was kind of helping run the teams that were working on single-player levels, and then near the end, I was kind of managing outsourcing and um, kind of asset creation, so working with the guys that were building the weapons, vehicles, and characters and stuff. So I worked on mainly Call of Duty games while I was at Raven, um, but I also worked on some other smaller titles, like smaller, but they're still big, like uh, Singularity and... A little bit on Wolf, one of the Wolfenstein games and stuff. But anyway, I worked on video games for for 15 years. And a, a lot of that experience in project management on those games, like, definitely mm-hmm. gave me at least, some, not maybe not an advantage, but just, like, um, I had built some skills for project management, which helps quite a bit when you're managing any project, you know, including board game publishing projects, right? Tell me about the your first steps into game design. Uh, I've heard you talk about where you had a, a large game at first with like mechs and stuff like that, and then you <laughs> uh, you had to abandon it because you, you you needed a smaller, more right easier to accomplish, I guess, goal for uh, for yeah. the Kickstarter. Yeah. So I mean, I, the first project I started designing is this kind of mech combat game, and it's still sitting on the shelves, like you know, in my closet. And I'll get back to it someday. But like, I had a wide open palette of things that I wanted to do. And first, I don't know why I got into this idea. We kind of had me and my two friends that were we were all kind of designing stuff at the same time. We before we started designing anything, we started talking about 
what is the process that we want to use to design these things? So we kind of like built like almost like a Google form of like, let, let's, let's write out all the bullet points of the things for this game. Like here's five different cool theme ideas. And here's like, you know, the core mechanics of what it could potentially be. Here's like what the wind condition would be. Like let's outline what we think at least out of our heads, what a, a turn might look like. Um, and then we would just get together and just like kind of walk through the things that we're thinking about and we give each other feedback. I like this idea of like equipping things, and then them getting blown off. It was kind of like I played like the BattleTech and the Mech Warrior games on on PC and stuff when I was younger, but I never I never played the tabletop version. Um, I was always intimidated by the rule set, so I had this idea of like I do this sometimes. I create these uh, analogies of like Ticket to Ride to like 18xx or you know something more complex that that's more route building, and less like stocks and stuff. But like what is what is the Ticket to Ride flavor of BattleTech? or mech warrior and then like what would that game be and that was kind of like where my jumping off point for that game was and i was seeing all these games with all these miniatures on kickstarter doing really well and it's, i think that's a a place you know i think as a potential creator you see games with miniatures doing really well and you're like oh well i should have miniatures in my game too and that's that's um, kind of a slippery slope though i think uh... <laughs> yeah danger danger um but and i actually had started um artwork on it uh, there's there's a uh, Ian O'Toole, if you're familiar with him, he's you know well-known illustrator, graphic designer. He actually was um, uh, working with me on it, so he was kind of new onto the scene, and he had done a board game geek post saying, "Hey, I'm looking to kind of build out a portfolio." And I contacted him, and um, you know, I sent him a copy of the game. I think he's in Australia, and um, for whatever reason, you know, I had no money, so I didn't have any money to pay him. Uh, not much at, all, at least. And he had kind of agreed to work on it. His vision of what it was, I think, was different than my vision of what it was. And then also he um, he played the game and basically told me, like, hey, I'm not sure if this game's any good. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, man. And, you know, that's that's harsh feedback, but it was useful. Uh, at, at some point, there was a breakdown of communication, and, and we just kind of decided to, like, let's just, you know, walk, walk away from this project and... And then at that point, I just kind of decided to regroup and and I had to make a decision. Like, do I want to take this project that I've been working really hard on? I'm getting some negative feedback. Like, I've been working with this artist for six months and I'm basically back at ground zero. Here's an opportunity to potentially change course or do I want to kind of climb the mountain, try to climb the mountain again? I was tired and frustrated. So I was like, well, let's let's try to do something small, right? Um, I was also getting manufacturing quotes from like different manufacturers. And it was like, uh, you know, putting the math together and saying, I'm going to have to raise a lot of money for this to be successful. I mean, I like to shoot for the moon sometimes, but this seems kind of unreasonable. So let's, let's try to do something small. And then I, I got together with some friends. We were just gaming. I, I usually game every Tuesday nights, right? When, when everybody's not in quarantine. And I sat down and played battle line for the like first time in a long time. One of my favorite Reiner community games. And, I was just like, I love this game. Like, this is so like elegant, and but there's so much fun and packed in that little box. Like, I should do a game like this. And then I was like, Well, okay, let's start with that. The thing that I love about the game and Lost Cities and kind of a lot of these smaller games is the sim- simplicity of like teaching somebody how, uh, their turn. I mean, there's a lot of other things going on, but teaching a turn is draw a card, play a card. And it's like, if I just start with that tenant of like, okay, what if I just basically made a draw a card, play a card game? And I and I don't want to just have a deck of cards on Kickstarter. I need bits, and I just basically put put the cards out on the table, and like just like a standard deck of cards. And like I started moving cubes around, 
there's a little bit of inspiration from like pandemic in terms of like uh, the little explosion happens in that game uh basically the frogs jump around there's the equivalent in pandemic when like whatever the what i forget what it's called when like uh, the city gets infections or yeah out- outbreaks outbreaks outbreak it's like the out- outbreak in pandemic so um but obviously bullfrogs is an area control more of an area control area majority game and pandemic the pandemic is not right so there's definitely differences i guess that's the other thing is like i just especially at that time i played a ton of games and i just like and i'm just constantly being inspired by the games that that are around me and one of the i'm also a relatively critical dude right like so i'm very it's very rare that i'm just like i have this experience and i'm happy with it i always have these experiences or go to these movies or watch or you know, watch these movies or play these video games or whatever the kind of so it might be because i came from you know qa originally in in video games it's like as soon as I see something, I'm always thinking of ways to make it better. If I'm critical of of the things around me, then and I and I, I see ways that I can make them better. Then in my own projects, I can do the same thing. It's like, well, I'm trying to think of like a you know, Gloomhaven's a good, it's a good game, but here's the ten things that I would change to make it better. It's like, okay, what if I took that idea and actually started to do that? Then I'd be on my a new path to a new game, right? So that's kind of like just the way I, I see the world, and I think that helps me like come up with ideas because I think. A lot of the best ideas are just kind of um, standing on the shoulders of other great ideas, right? So, yeah, I don't think people like sit in a room and just like get inspired with an idea and then just go with it. Um, it's it's usually the result of the things that they're exposed to, and and I, I would like to think that like desire to make those things better. So. Yeah, I, I think uh, you're you're on to something there. We we also had like a very very similar experience where our first game we knew nothing about uh, publishing and manufacturing so we didn't have any of those restrictions uh when we worked on it and it wasn't until later when we talked to manufacturers that we saw the sums of of how much everything would cost and and we realized a very similar thing like uh take or or, or to start off maybe with some something smaller and i think that's something that lots of designers can bump into uh before they know about the the rest of the the process which is manufacturing right and yeah. publishing yeah uh for sure um and i think there was also kind of during that time there was this big push for micro games as well like tasty minstrel was doing all their pay what you want projects and stuff so like it felt like there was this kind of bubbling of smaller projects that was was getting exciting that people were getting excited about i feel like that's died away to some degree at this point but you know don't bite off more than you can chew i know the, those big those big uh miniature projects are look exciting and you see the big money that they pull in, but they are riddled with risk. And if you don't know what you're doing, it's not going to turn out well for you in the end. <laughs> I mean, you read the the, the classic story of, um, I talked about Glory to Rome before, but like that was the first Kickstarter project I ever backed. It was one of the first Glory to Rome. And you read the story about that dude, like having the successful Kickstarter project and then like, and like having to losing one of, one of his houses as a result of like having to pay all the shipping charges and stuff, it's there's there's no shortage of like um, cautionary tales out there of Kickstarter creators that were a little bit uh, not as diligent about um, figuring out all the financials of their project before hitting the launch button. And how how did you uh, do that your your first time with Bullfrogs? How did how did you figure out all the financial aspects? And I'm not as thorough about this stuff as as uh, one could potentially as one would be, but I basically looked at other projects that looked like they were successful and then kind of copied some of like the ballpark figures that they were using and then, um, and then adding 20% just to like cover my ass. Um, (laughs) 
I mean, I, I obviously had my my manufacturing quote, and I had uh, multiple quotes with different options based on like potential stretch goals that I wanted to do. And like, kind of getting that information can be a little bit difficult in terms of just like you have to be diligent uh, with, with these guys uh, with different manufacturers. And you know, choosing a manufacturer is another like piece of the puzzle. I st- I still use uh, Panda uh, for all my all my stuff. The first, actually, the first printing of cartographers was with a different manufacturer because um, I was doing an experiment to try to potentially like I was nervous about having all my eggs in one basket um, in terms of using the same manufacturer for all my stuff. But it turned out that that was a failed experiment, and I, now everything's back at Panda. I mean, mainly because Panda is known for high quality stuff. They're also known for being expensive. So. Um, and I just decided I don't care if they're expensive. I just want to make sure my game is the highest quality it can be. But there are definitely some cost savings to be had at other manufacturers. And also, like, in terms of, like, how fast the manufacturer can turn around a project is, is very different from manufacturer to manufacturer. It's been, like, a six six to nine-month process on some of these projects with these guys. But I've also, on the other hand, I've seen some of my partners in Europe, print like, print my games in their language in, like, six weeks. So it's, like... Um, depending on where you're printing, uh, these things can turn around a lot faster. And Panda's definitely slower. And they also, they kind of hold your hand for a new beginner, like new Kickstarter creators are a good option because they kind of hold your hand quite a bit uh, to make sure that you don't screw it up. But I, I forget where the original question was. <laughs> it was about uh, figuring out the financial stuff around Kickstarter. Oh, yeah, so um, James Matthew has a good post about it. And I kind of used, there's there is like this industry standard of like, you find out what your manufacturing cost is and then multiply it by five. Six is what, is people what say. I've heard, yeah. Yeah, I, I usually use six mm-hmm. um, just because things change. I mean, and I think that gets you in the ballpark. I think there's, like, depending on the type of project and uh, the size of the project, that number, you know, doesn't really work. And you learn that with over time. But that's, like, a good starting point. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've made mistakes on that project, but that's kind of where I started with that number. And then... You know, you just have to know what all your what all your expenses are in terms of like the Kickstarter percentage that they take and um, how many refunds and how many kind of expected how many refunds you're you're gonna request you're likely to get how many failed pledges uh, never get resolved and those numbers change over time. So probably the easiest way I think to kind of start engaging or you know trying to find success on Kickstarter and like finding the answers to some of these more difficult like obfuscated questions is um, just kind of reach out to other Kickstarter creators. So early on, you know, I, I started reaching out to Eduardo Braff at Pencil First Games because um, he was, I felt like he was doing stuff that I, like he was one step above me. Like I wanted to be doing stuff that he was doing and he was very kind and, and gave me advice. And then we ended up working on a bunch of games together, but there's other guys like, uh, like the Van Ryder guys. Like I, I just randomly re- reach out to these people or I meet them at conventions we have a shared experience of trying to have successful games on Kickstarter. Everybody's kind of trying to solve the same questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a great resource to just like, like, Oh, I, you know, I figured out this part, but I, I got this other solution. Oh, and then, so you kind of have these uh, discussions and everybody's kind of trying to help each other out that are kind of in that space. At least most people are just connecting with other creators and other designers that are trying to do what you're trying to do. is like uh, invaluable in terms of like, just, I mean, some of it is just figuring out the financials and, and avoiding problems but some of it is just like validation that like, you know, you're able to help other people and they're able to help you. And 
or everybody's trying to figure it out together and, 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 and kind of sharing each other's successes. Yeah, I think that's really awesome about the board game community is just that, how, how approachable, first of all, everyone is. Uh, a lot of uh, people who have been down that path and being able to exchange uh, ideas and talking to people who have been there before, like like I'm talking to you now, and the, the idea for the for the podcast is just that, you know, like exchange information about design and publishing and manufacturing. What about marketing? Did you put any money into marketing for that first Kickstarter? Um, yeah, I think on that one I did. Um, I did some BG and BGG ads. I mean, BGG ads are. I mean, definitely when I first on my first project, and I and I got like that marketing information as to how much those BGG ads are. It was kind of like a, a little bit of a shock to the system because they're they're pricey, um, and I I think I just wasn't in a, in the I just hadn't calculated a marketing expense into my into my process. It was like I made this cool game. It's on Kickstarter. I told a couple friends about it. It should be successful, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Um, and marketing is is not my strong suit. But um, and over the years, I've kind of found people to help me, right? So I've got two guys currently. Uh, one is primarily focusing on Twitter stuff and the other one's mainly focusing on Facebook and newsletter stuff. But they help me out with that because like I'm much more interested in making great games and less about like selling great games to people. Um, although I have to sell them to be able to continue to make them. Right. So um, and the first project, I did some banner ads. I think I did like kick track, um, which is questionable return. And I did board game geek. And, you know, I just. It's the same thing. I looked at other similar size projects and I looked what they were advertising. Or I might even ask them like where they were advertising. And I just kind of did the same thing. Um, at the time, Facebook ads weren't like a big deal back then. In terms of promotion, you know, Reddit was a mystery then. And it remains a mystery for a lot of uh, uh, board game creators. So um, it was mainly a board game geek. And then you have to keep in mind in your first project, most of the backers you're going to have are likely to be friends and family. You know, I remember when, when Bullfrogs was published and I, and I was like, I came into work because there's all these people from work that bought copies and I'm like delivering them to people and I'm like crazy excited and like people, people, oh, that's cool. Like they, it, it, I didn't, hadn't realized at the time that they just pledged to my project, like just to help me out. Like they didn't genuinely like want to play this game, which is kind of like a little bit of a hard pill to swallow <clears throat> where like I, I pass them out and then like a couple days later there's like some company-wide emails like hey if anybody wants a copy of this game i bought from keith then you can have it <laughs> and i mean i guess at the end of the day i would rather it be in somebody's hands that's going to play it but um you know some people just want to help you out right they just want you to succeed and they don't really care about your product which is a little bit uh weird but um because you want everybody to love the thing that you make but they're much more interested in seeing you succeed than they are in the thing you're trying to make. So then when you get to your second project, those people, all those friends and family that helped you out, uh, I think people kind of feel like, Oh, well I helped them out. <laughs> and then um, I expected kind of the same, a lot of those same people to return for the second project, but mo um, mo many of them did not. Right. It's basically the next project. Like I got to find the audience for this game is a totally different thing. Like I can't assume that because the first project was successful. The second project will be as well. And that like, I've built this audience. Like I think the first project to the second project is going to be a big change in the terms of who's, who's backing your project. It's interesting. Kickstarter, like when you, I always go to it with like really high expectations or high, I anticipate like 
I have high expectations, right? Like I see these other other projects being successful. Like why wouldn't mine be just as successful, right? And I also figured out that like most people aren't, they're not backing the company. They're not backing the, they're not backing the company. They're not backing the designer. They're backing the game, right? So like if people just, like if, if people just aren't into your game idea or the way it looks, like it's got some, like the artwork isn't that great or like it's some wacky theme that like isn't connecting with people. It doesn't matter if you're Isaac Childress and just published Frost you know, Frosthaven and Gloomhaven. If people don't like the way the game looks or aren't interested in the theme or there's nothing uh, interesting about kind of, there's no hook for it. Those people aren't going to, most people are not going to back that project just based on that person's reputation. I mean, there are definitely the hardcore gamers out there and the people that follow it kind of follow that kind of stuff. But uh, most people, they're, they're just looking at the game and saying, is this interesting? Is this cool? Do I want to put my money towards this? Like the whole, like who, who did this before or who's, who's the creator of this project? What's the pedigree of the designer? Uh, what is the the history of the publisher? I think most people don't think and or care about that stuff. I mean, I was that was a surprise to me as a Kickstarter creator. Yeah, well, you, I'm, I'm guessing you kind of thought about, or when when you're interested in like board games, you forget that for a lot of people it is just a hobby and they just want a cool game to have. They don't really care so much about who's published it and who designed it. So I, I guess yeah. that's normal. Yeah, it's like I was when I, I did my um, that game by Brett Myers, uh, Dual Powers, which is, which is about the Russian Revolution, it had a, a very different look from anything that I ever done. Very different theme. I I assume I wrote some of my at least a certain a certain percentage of my role player people would come over, but like <laughs> nobody did. I was like, hey guys, I got this new game, and they're like crickets, you know. <laughs> um, and I ended up using kind of like a I I basically re- what did I do? I think I like I started I offered some a. Uh, a promo card for role player to people who came over to look at dual powers. Like, Oh really? <laughs> you know, here's, here's like a carrot on a stick. Please come over and look at this thing. So, and in the end it was successful, but like I, I, um, and it's gotten good reviews and, you know, published in multiple languages. Um, but definitely like coming out of the gate c- compared to doing like a role player expansion versus doing this game about the Russian revolution, like the day one funding level was, you know, night and day. Although, you know, I worked, you know, probably equally hard on both projects. So, I mean, that's another thing to consider when you're like, like, what is, what is marketable? Like, what is, like, how do you, how do you pick the projects that you're going to do? How do you pick the theme for the projects you're going to do? Because um, theme is a big deal. I, I always feel like theme is what gets people in the door and, and gameplay is what gets people to stick around, you know? Um, if the game's good, they'll keep playing it. But if, if it's a theme that they just are not interested in, like, it's hard to even get it to the table. And then there's like this balance between like people want to see something. I th- I think people would want this. I don't know. I feel like people want something u- unique and interesting, but they don't want it to be like sharks with lasers in outer space time travel, like they're the way out in wacky town. So I think oftentimes when people are trying to find something unique and interesting, they end up in wacky town. And then that kind of turns off a certain percentage of the people. So it's like, do I do traditional fantasy, just like a million other games, and get lost in the crowd, um, or do I kind of do something crazy out out in left field that kind of alienates a, a certain you know a certain percentage of your your user base? So like trying to figure out that balance between those two ideas um, is challenging. Yeah, I don't I don't have any. Definitely. I feel like I've been relatively successful on that front, but like it's not an easy thing to kind of uh, to, to nail, I guess. Well, I, th- I think with role player, you definitely stood out from the crowd with with the character creation game. I, I think that's 
definitely something right. that set the game apart but it, it still kept that high fantasy uh setting which people love but it was it, it has a hook you know right it's got a hook which is cool and then cartographers has got a great hook too it's like i'm where everybody building fantasy maps like oh, okay i get it yeah the thing with role player was like okay well if if the hook is making characters then it's like all right we do fantasy and we keep it as generic as possible which is kind of something i've been talking about a lot a lot lately is role player started out as like generic as i could come up with like i mean one i didn't want like tsr or whatever wizards of the coast or those guys like coming after me um but on the other hand it's like i was getting a lot of inspiration from games like you know skyrim i mean obviously i have a background in video games there's an old series called Ultima from the 80s that I used to play a ton of. But then, like, now that it's, like, roleplay is now a thing, and I people want to do something with their characters, and I'm starting to... And I've, I started working on roleplay adventures quite a long time ago. I can't I can't have a, uh, an interesting fantasy adventuring experience in, like, the most vanilla of fantasy environments. So, like, now I, we've been building out this world over time, um, which I'm excited to kind of show people in the next uh, month or so. So, I mean, that that had the hook. Cartographers has a hook. Um, you know, Bullfrogs didn't really have... I mean, Bullfrogs' hook was like, it's fighting frogs. So I guess that was the hook. But, I mean, there's there was some feedback of like, yeah, I don't feel like I'm fighting something, which is also an interesting idea. Like, that that having the mechanics and the theme, like, mesh. I mean, it's, it's all a level of, a, of abstraction, right? So it's like, if I'm in a game about fighting things... Like, unless I'm physically punching something or, like, swinging a sword, it's all an abstraction, right? So, and it seems like certain abstractions feel like combat and other abstractions don't, right? Um, and it's it's really hard to kind of uh, wrap my brain around that of, like, okay, um, if I roll a bunch of dice and you roll a bunch of dice, it might feel like combat. But if I flip a card and you flip a card, does that still feel like combat? Or... I guess because there's, there's a, a random result and there's some chaos associated with, with battle, that those things uh, lead to that. But is moving upon a, on a space, can that feel like battle? I think most people would probably say no, but it's it's just like another level of, of abstraction. And, and that's kind of like, how do I get players to feel a certain way or feel like they're doing the thing the game is telling them they're doing? That, that can be a, a challenge uh, and something that I think about a lot. Um, because, I mean, there are kind of limited, I mean, it feels like it's unlimited, but I don't think it is. It's like limited things, like kind of by default, you know, the players are going to do. They're like moving chits around, they're playing cards, they're flipping cards. There's like, this is not like an infinite number of things, and, and none of them feel like any of the things that they're supposed to be doing in these games. Like, you know, when I give you a piece, a card that has a sheep on it, I don't feel like I'm really giving you a sheep, right? So, like, it's, I don't, I'm kind of going on a tangent, but it's, um, where it came from was I was talking about uh, bullfrogs, and one of the one of the uh, comments about that game is that like even though the theme is that it's like f- frogs fighting over lily pads, like there's there's some complaints about it is that it doesn't feel thematic, and I, it just kind of had me thinking about that. Um, and so bullfrogs is a game that I I sublicensed to another publisher, which is it was an interesting situation. I, it was my first Kickstarter project. I was working on a role player and and some other games. And I kind of wanted to just like, you know, do, do this with it and be like, all right, somebody else give it a longer life. And Scott at Renegade um, offered some advice. Uh, Kane Klenko, a good friend of mine, introduced me to Scott and at Gen Con. And, and I gave him a copy and they played it and they said they liked it. And they said they wanted to publish it again. Um, and then they they took it and then they kind of 
revamp the look of it, at least the cover, because I wanted to try to hit like a, maybe a younger audience that wasn't like so, didn't have such a serious look. And then they released it. And it was interesting that like the distribution chain was kind of like, you know, hey, what's this? And they're like, um, it's Bullfrogs. It's like, oh, we already have a game like that. It's like, oh, well, it's the same game. And they're like, well, we already have this. Like, why would we pick it up from you guys when like we already have some or we have the old version? But this is not a new game. It's just a reskin of a, a game that just recently came out. So I think Renegade uh, struggled um, with that one in terms of like finding a market for it. When did you add the solo mode to the game? So um, I added the solo mode in the middle of the Kickstarter, which is something that I never want to do, but I have done multiple times. Um, I like to come to Kickstarter with the project like 99% of the way done. Um, there might be some last minute stretch goal stuff, but like I'm not a... When I, I've backed a lot of Kickstarter projects, so I know what it's like to be a backer. And if you're like six months after the Kickstarter and they're finally like submitting the files to the manufacturer because they did some final play testing, like that's frustrating to me as a backer. So I don't want to put uh, my backers through that experience. So I want the game to be ready to go to print when the Kickstarter launches. And then we might make some adjustments and give it another, like after the Kickstarter is over a month to kind of get everything into the manufacturer. And then we can kind of keep moving because. You know, so these these Kickstarter projects that last forever for people to get their stuff. Um, first of all, like being on the creator end of that is not fun. Like you you got a thousand people that are that are kind of waiting on you. I mean, maybe they're not they're not all vocal about it or really care that much about waiting, but there's always a certain percentage that are. And it's like as soon as the project's over, I want to deliver that game as fast as I can. Um, so I like to be ready. So I, at the beginning, both Bullfrogs and for Roleplayer, I came in. I'm like, okay, this is the product. Let's go. And for Bullfrogs, people uh, just asked for... I think there were a couple inquiries for a solo mode. I mean, solo gaming hadn't really kind of blown up yet. But basically, I just had an idea. And I was like, this is kind of cool. Um, I was looking for something else to unlock as a stretch goal to get like people excited about the game. So I, I think I added this... I basically invented the single-player mode in the middle of the campaign and um, added it as an add-on. And then uh, most of the... I was surprised, like... I did some, I did, I looked at some point, but I think like 70%, maybe 80% of the people that, that backed it added the single player mode to it. I was like, oh, okay. Either, either people are just looking for more ways to give me money, which is, which was true because they, I had friends and family that wanted to, to give more money, but like for whatever reason, like adding additional copies wasn't something they wanted to do. I don't know. But it also meant like, hey, maybe this like solo gaming thing is like uh, on its way up. So, so then I kind of made this decision that all of my games moving forward, I would try to put a single player mode in. Um, and then at some point, I decided that they all need to have that, like for sure. And then uh, role player was kind of the same way. There was like people complaining, like I want a single player mode during the campaign, and I was like, you know, it's designed as a multiplayer game. It is what it is. And basically, I let the I let them gang up on me. And eventually I said, fine, I'll try to design something. So I just sat down. And people love the solo mode for roleplayer. But I, I literally spent, like, maybe two hours working on it, like, <laughs> of how it worked. I tested it, like, five times or something. It's like, seems pretty good. <laughs> and then and, and it is what it is. And it's, it's still, I think, one of the most played single-player games out there. And um, some of that is because I continue to, like, support the guys that are helping run those. On Board Game Geek, there's, like, a group that, there's a challenge every month and they set up like a, a stats and then everybody's playing uh, and then comparing. And then um, I support with like pri prizes and giveaway stuff just to, just to encourage people to continue to participate in that, in that and continue to play my game. Uh, but people like it. It's cool. 
And then obviously kind of doing those two solo games, I started working on some solo modes for Pencil First Games for Herbaceous and Sunset Over Water and Herbaceous Sprouts. And now the new one is uh, the Whatnot Cabinet. So I I designed the single-player modes for all those games. To me, the the thing that I like most about gaming is getting together with my friends. And that's why kind of this this quarantine has, has been difficult for me in terms of like just getting games played and and i don't have a whole lot of like i'm not that interested in playing over tabletopia or or tabletop simulator for that same reason but you know you don't have that experience uh solo mode so for for me i don't i don't play a ton of solo stuff unless there's some kind of narrative element to it if there's like if there's some story to explore then it's kind of like a interactive book to some degree like i like those kind of experiences but in general it's not i don't play a ton of solo stuff but um, I have designed some solo games that people seem to like. So yeah, I, cool. I, I think your your solo variants of your games are really really strong, and it's actually part of how I I, I got to know about your games more. Uh, was just a couple of weeks ago I asked on one of the Facebook groups with board games. I was asking them for good dice placement games. A role player kept coming up, so I uh, but I didn't have anyone to play with, so I just decided to play solo on uh, Tabletop Simulator. And I really, really yeah. enjoyed it. And then I, I played, I played through cartographers just because I don't, I don't really like playing multiplayer for some reason on uh, those <laughs> di- digital platforms. I, I prefer playing a single player right. game still on the, on the platform. But it, it really uh, feels like what I really look for in a, in a solo variant, um, having some, some form of AI which is simple enough where you're, you're not, you don't feel like you're making decisions for it. And I thought in both cartographers and role player. It was super simple. You roll a die, you see what uh, k- kind of changes. Yeah, and that's it. You keep playing. So it's it's most of the time you're the one taking your your own turn. You don't have to think for the AI. I think I think that's I like that that method as well. I mean, yeah, I prefer that method just because. And I said this I think last week on some podcast. It was like uh, when I was talking to Eduardo actually mm-hmm. um, that if I'm playing a single player game, the the single player should be doing most of playing right um and if there's a lot of administration on the ai side like i get frustrated and and it, like i don't want to have to hold this additional rule set in my mind about what that guy's doing so that's that's the style like and i think single player should be fast i mean just in terms of talking about design for single player like there's i think there's two maybe three different core methodologies um one is like how basically how do you structure um, a single player game in which like it, it feels rewarding for the player at the at the end and there's like the one where you're fighting the ai um and there's which is in my experience is that it's the preferred way and then there's then there's an extension of that in which like you're fighting a ai and they have like some automa deck of cards that that like is is kind of like ai plus and then there's like the high score methodology which is uh which most of mine do but um not all of them. Like I think uh, uh, Herbaceous Sprouts, you're you're trying to fight the AI. I don't remember <laughs> to be honest. It's interesting those little projects that I do for Ed, those single player projects. Like the game, the multiplayer game is pretty much pretty much done, and then he gives it to me, and then I spend you know a week working on a single player version, and I hand it back, and then I'm kind of like I'm done, and um, the game comes out a year later or something, and by that time I've oftentimes forgotten how it worked <laughs> yeah i heard you talking about that yeah uh, uh what about de- developing other people's games like uh cartographers at first of all at what 
stage was Cartographers when you first saw it? Yeah, so um, Cartographers was originally called Doodle Realms. It was um, so. There's some history here. So the guy who does who's done mo- most, maybe all of my graphic design on my projects is a guy named Luis Francisco, who's a Brazilian guy who lives in Canada. Um, he also owns a, a part of a Brazilian publisher. They found this this designer. I don't know, like it's Jordi Adan. I think that's I don't I'm I'm sure that's not pronounced properly because because the way um, he's also Brazilian. They found this this Brazilian designer. Uh, Luis calls him Georgie, so I guess that's probably why that's how his name is pronounced. But um, and basically, uh, Luis had kind of uh, licensed a handful of his games um, to to release in Brazil, and then he, they were shopping around the designs to other publishers for kind of international releases. Um, and two of those came out last year. Um, one was Rolling Ranch, which Thunder Griff Games published, which. Um, which gone over at Thunder Grift is a friend of mine. And I, and I actually did the rules editing for his rule book on that game. And it was funny. Um, and, and anyway, Luis, Luis had shown me uh, uh, Doodle Realms and I was excited about it. But when I started working on the rule book for uh, Rolling Ranch, I had to be like, hey, Gon, just so you know, I've signed a game from the same designer in the same genre. I mean, I hope you, you know, if you really want me to work on this, I can, but there might, that might make you uncomfortable or whatever. So, and, Gon always says whenever he sees me now, he's like, "You got Jordy's good game." Um, so, um, I mean, I like Rolling Ranch, but, as, but it seems like Cartographers is kind of, um, sp- you know, seems to have a little bit more spark for people. But um, he showed me uh, Doodle Realms, and it was all hand hand drawn like art. Um, it had four scoring cards, where the final version had sixteen scoring cards, and I think the 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 there's the idea of if you surround a mountain, you get coins that wasn't part of the original design and then the back sheet with the void in the middle wasn't part of the original design but in general it it worked the same um we simplified the cards a little bit sometimes in in cartographers when the cards come out you either have a choice like the standard cards you either have a choice between two terrains or two shapes um that used to be kind of less um rigid uh, regimented it used to be some of the cards either would be like two shapes and two terrains and you had to mix and match however you wanted so we simplified that choice a little bit um but basically uh it was pretty dang close to what it is in terms of like the ruin cards come out that was the same you know the cards would the way the timer worked was the same um and uh but basically i was like this is a cool project but it kind of needs like some additional development and then i handed it I, I, I licensed it from Luis, who had licensed it from Majority, and I so I have rights to it worldwide minus Brazil, and then I then sublicensed it to publishers like Pegasus Spiel, who publish it in, in Germany. So it's I think it's in uh, 11, 11 languages at this point, but it's a uh, it's been doing well. Um, so then once I got it, I I handed it off to John Brieger, who's like kind of uh, one of the guys I like to use for development. He worked on Lockup helped me finish lockup he helped me finish fiends of familiars for role player and then he uh took cartographers and added you know 14 more scoring cards and uh he did some refinement on some of the cards uh, in terms of how they they worked but in general uh john also developed the, the solo mode uh jordy hadn't didn't include one so john developed that so um i didn't have like a super big hand in in the in terms of like uh, refining that one, like I recognized it as a great game, 
and I basically passed it over to John to work on because I was working on uh, Fiends and Familiar stuff, to be honest. It was it was interesting pitch. So my friend Luis, who um, licensed me the game, but also does work for me. You know, we've worked together for a long time, and we're, we're good friends. And he knows I don't really... Uh, people always come to me and say, hey, I've got this game you can put in the role player universe. I'm always like, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, and he's like, I know you hate when people do this, but I think you should do this. And um, I was like, I don't know. I don't want... Like roll and write games, I feel like they're 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 you know they're high, but they're not going to be in a year, so I don't know if I want to do this. And then, and then he's like, just read the rules. And I was like, I started to read the rules, and I was like, these are awful. I don't understand what the hell is going on. So then I was like, I'll just rewrite the rules for you. So like I I took like you know two hours and I, I rewrote the rules and asked them some questions for clar- clarity um, in English because obviously English isn't their first language either one of them. Um, and then I was like, well, well, now that I know how to play the game, I might as well try it. <laughs> so um, so then I sat down and played. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And there was, I think it was in the fall. It was like, I think it was maybe the summer of last year. As in, uh, maybe it was two years ago. Oh, my God. But, but there was this like, hey, if we rush on this, we could get it out for the spiel two years ago. And I was like, I don't want to do that. Like, I want to take my time and put it through its proper development and like get one of the differentiating factors is like there's all these roll and write games out there. And like I talked about before, I see things and, I, and I'm critical. I see all these roll and write games out there. And honestly, I think they look like garbage. Like I think they don't have any art on them. And it's like I play games and I'm going to be looking at this thing for an hour, maybe two hours, just a general board game. And I want to be looking at something that, that looks amazing. So um, I was like, I want to take our time, do this right, get a really good artist um, and, uh, and, and release it, you know, uh, you know, let it bake in the oven for a while and then make sure it's quality. So I do think Cartographers is one of the best looking roll and write games out there. Um, and that was intentional, right? Because I, I didn't want to put out something that, that didn't look very good. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like that the way that one came. And then it kind of lined up with uh, Lockup, which was also a game I put in that universe, which I had been working on for much longer uh, with, with Stan Kordonsky, the designer of that one. I mean, I, I can I can keep rolling on this this topic if that's of interest. Um, but basically, uh, yeah, a lockup is another game from another designer that um, I found that one at a kind of designer meetup called the Protospiel, and um, I just said this is this is a cool game, and I actually um, I, I asked him to have the prototype so I could play it with my friends, and uh, he's like actually uh, James Ma- the late James Matthew who's from Minion Games who was. Um, you know, a bit of a controversial fellow, but he, um, you know, passed away uh, in the last year or so. And but he offered a lot of advice for up, up and coming Kickstarter creators. And I still think a lot of his advice is very valid, even though kind of Kickstarter has changed a lot in the last few years. But and he, he took it and I was like, man, James got it. You know, I know James pretty well. And then he came uh, and I said, hey, James, if you're not going to, you know, if you don't end up taking that one, let me know. I'll, I'll take a look at it. So. James ended up passing on Lockup because it needed development and he didn't want to spend the time. He wanted something that was publishable kind of out of the gate. And I liked, I liked the idea enough that I said, you know, let's, I'll take it and then I'll work on development on it. So I had the designer go through multiple new versions of it. And then I uh, sent it to John Brieger again to do more development on it. And so that, that one went through a lot of, compared to cartographers, uh, since the moment I, I signed Lockup, it went through, a lot more changes than cartographers did but it's also a more complex game so that's not surprising yeah could you tell me more about uh role player adventures because that's also yeah. you, you said that it's a more of a team effort with uh i'm, I'm guessing development and 
Yeah, I mean, it's huge. This project is huge. So, so where does role player adventures? Where do I start? So, role player adventures is the result of people playing role player and saying, "I want to do something with this character." And kind of my half answer has been monsters and minions, where like, yeah, you could fight some stuff. That's cool, but you don't really go on an, an adventure in those games. Role player at the end of the day is still about just making characters. So now, um, role player adventures. It's a narrative storybook game, you know, kind of in the veins of uh, Near and Far and, and Above and Below. Um, but um, the, the the big tenant is like you're going on these adventures. I mean, I guess Legends of or Dragonholt is also another game in this genre. But you get to import your character from Roleplayer or use one of the pre-generated characters. And you go on these adventures and they're guided by these storybooks and these road encounter books. And you're making decisions. And the, the game is built to be very, very responsive to the decisions that you're making. So there's, um, I mean, it has kind of a traditional keyword system where, like, as you do things, that you write down keywords, and then that's going to trigger off uh, in future passages. This is nothing new from, um, you know, fighting fantasy books or those kind of uh, uh, game books that have been out. Um, but then there's also um, a system where you're it's recording titles, where you're getting cards, and those titles uh, help uh, record your uh, choices between adventures. So that's kind of, and, and it's all about like explore, exploring the story together. Um, but in addition to that, I think um, having a strong mechanical element is important too. So like I have found in those kind of games, like if, if you end up kind of just reading out of a book for a long time to a group of people, like eyes glaze over and like, you know, people start like fiddling with their phones or whatever. So um, there's also, um, you know, a pretty heavy mechanical element to the game where anytime you're doing combat or kind of skill checks, it's a cooperative experience. So this is the first cooperative game I've ever designed. So that's kind of like a, a hallmark, I guess. But um, everybody's got their own character. Every character's got their own deck, which represents their skills and traits and armor and weapons and stuff. And basically dice get rolled into the middle of the table. You're kind of trying to match uh, uh, colors and numbers, something like a one deck dungeon does some similar stuff to this. But everybody around the table is playing cards to manipulate the dice in the center of the table to be the way that we, we want them to. So that it leads to a lot of um, player discussion about like planning of, of how we want to do things. Um, and then over the course of the game, I mean, every single card in the game is unique. So everybody's got kind of different abilities and they're buying different ones as they go. Um, and then there's like this kind of luck mitigation system in which like um, you're spending uh, what's what would I call stamina from different attributes, like a dexterity one is going to help me uh, get if I spend dexterity stamina from my character, I can pull a black die out of the bag instead of taking a random one, which reduces a random element so that we have a higher chance of getting the things we need to succeed on the puzzle and that kind of stuff. So it's cool. Uh, I mean, I got, got in the weeds on the mechanics a little bit, but um, it's it has about 60% story, 40% um, mechanical dice rolling, dice manipulation. Uh, it takes about two hours to play. Uh, the base game has 11 kind of campaign missions. So it's like scenario-based, um, right? Yeah, yeah. So like each each adventure has an adventure book, and you're going to sit down and play that for two hours or whatever. Um, and then there's a, sec there's a large book that's called The Tome of Encounters that has all the road encounters for all the adventures. So usually uh, the storybook sits with one person, and then the, um, the Tome of Encounters sits with the, another person. And as you go to different locations on a large map that's in the center of the table, which looks amazing, by the way. Um, every time you go to a new location, then the books rotate around the table, so everybody gets a chance to, to read. 
It's not just like the one dude that likes to talk <laughs> gets to talk the whole time, um, which is usually me. And the Kickstarter is June 23rd. The box is going to be huge. There's like there's there's over 400,000 words in this thing. Um, I've got myself as the original designer and then um, a guy named James Ryan, who is the, the lead writer. And he also has, you know, some design chops as well. So he helped out there too. And um, we've been working hand in hand uh, for three years. In the last, like probably in the last three to four months, we have a daily meeting that's um, at least three hours long, which I had to cancel to do this, by the way. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, and we just we're just constantly reviewing text. We're talking through the adventures. We're we're play testing, um, but it's been a long process. So it's like me and James are kind of the two main guys, and then like the sheer amount of content became overwhelming. So we brought in James's brother Peter, and he wrote three of the adventures, which which is quite a bit. And then um, John Brieger came in for development last year. He's been working on it for at least a year, and then he's got uh, Brenna Noonan. Uh, helping out on development I, I probably had like six illustrators and like four editors like and just managing this level the size of a team has been definitely a, a challenge for me um, and also I've got multiple graphic designers and then I've got all my media people that have been helping out so like um, it's, it's, it's definitely stretching the limits of what Thunderworks can do and uh, so we'll see I'm, I'm super excited about it um, and uh People have been asking me for this game for a long time, so I'm, <laughs> I think other people are excited as well. Yeah, but. I, I'm definitely excited for it, and I, I don't even know that much about it yet. Uh, but it, it sounds yeah. really cool. How long have you been working on it, and and how did you start with uh, the idea, and how, how, when did you get other people involved in the, the process? Yeah, sure. So um, we've been kind of working on it for three years, like in the background, um, and, the, and ever since kind of after we've been – I've been much more focused on it daily, at least from my side, after after Essen of last year, so like last October. But we've been working on it, like playing prototypes and, and, and sorting it out. So basically what happened is the original idea was there. And I saw, you know, I saw the stuff that Ryan Lucat was doing, and it's like, the stuff is cool. I love uh, Sherlock Holmes' Consulting Detective, and I love these kind of narrative games. And I was like, man, it would be awesome to do one of those, but I'm not a writer. So, like, I don't know even, I wouldn't even know where to start start in terms of like finding that but like people come to were coming to me with this idea all the time i was like yeah i know but like i don't know if i have the skills to do that um and i actually was starting to talk to scott gator from renegade about doing like a traditional rpg based on the role player universe that i was starting to build with lockup and cartographers but but that never that never went anywhere. but maybe it will in the future anyway um and basically my buddy james uh he we we'd gotten together quite a few times um, just kind of testing prototypes. Like, um, he's actually the one that inspired me to design role player from the beginning, because he had uh, shown me this. Um, we were at Protospiel, and he showed me this game. Like, there must have been some contest for like an eighteen card RPG. He showed it to me, and and I was like, yeah, you know, I'm not that. I'm not really into RPGs much anymore. But I I tried it. But I I remember thinking like this character creator system he had was cool. Where like you get dealt a card that has like a a benefit, like a a positive trait on both sides of a card. And a negative trait on both sides of the card, and you get dealt them randomly, and you just pick a side for each character, and like that was your character. I was like, that part seems kind of fun. Like, what if the whole game was about creating characters? So then I like went home and like I, I started working on role player. But and he showed me quite a few games over the years um, that he's been working on, and he just kind of came up to me. We were at, I don't we were at a um, I want to say we were at like a, a board game flea market, 
And then he like came up to me with this, with this idea. I was like, hey, have you thought about doing a narrative kind of game like that? I was like, yeah, but I don't have anybody to work on it with me. And he's like, well, you know, you know, I'm a you know, English professor and like, I love you know, these game book kind of things. And I was like, I'd be interested, but like, you have to understand this is going to eat up a ton of your life for a long period of time. Like you have to understand the level of commitment required to complete this thing. And he, he said he's all in. So we took the leap of faith and we started working on it together. So I needed somebody, I needed the right person in the, in the co-pilot seat to kind of make it happen. And it seems like that has worked out. So, yeah, so that was kind of the origins of it. And then you build prototypes, starting to figure out what the systems are, doing design. And then like once you kind of figure out what the core systems are, you know, besides that, you know, you start, you start building out content. And I think people want a lot of content. I don't know, at least I want a big, con- a lot of content, like with this kind of game. I know like the um, Space Cowboys stuff that they did for, what's like the white box game? It's, um, time Stories. Oh yeah, Time like, Stories. So t- time Stories did a, like a totally different model where they've got like, I have the system and then I'm just going to sell you modules. And like, I didn't, I don't really like that idea. I, like I wanted to have like, since the, in my mind that the world is epic, that I want the story to be epic. I don't want somebody to just like read the first two chapters of a book and put it away. Like I want you to get the the entire system, um, which means the box is going to be Gloomhaven-y, you know, pandemic legacy plus size. And it's not going to be like, it's not a $50 game, right? So um, we got we to gotta cut down a ton of trees to make this game. <laughs> so um it's, it's it's I'm kind of considering it like my my magnum opus or whatever. Like this is this is the game that I've been most excited about for a long time. You know, I'm a big um, I don't know I'm a big Stephen King fan and like his like uh, like if the stand is his like his centerpiece item. Like I feel like this game is like my hmm. my the stand for for Stephen King. But I am super excited about it and I um, I hope other people are, I hope other people enjoy it. You know. Well, it's it's definitely like a different feeling from like working on this than like working on the second role player expansion. Like I'm sure I felt this way when I was working on a role player, but then by the time I get to like the second expansion, you're like, you know, yeah, you I'm, get... it's you're kind of adding to something that you you already have done, and it's just not as interesting as something new and different. I really love how you've uh, connected the games in the same universe, and they're all different, but just just that little. Uh theme and um what do you call it like it, it, you've built up a really good brand around having different types of games mechanic wise and stuff like that but you still have the same type of artwork and yeah uh, same universe which i think is just really really cool yeah i mean some of it just comes from the, the the simple fact of like i like fantasy stuff if i'm gonna do another fantasy game like why would i why would i like create some totally different universe why wouldn't i lean on the stuff that i already have and I think there's there's the the brand connection that people um, can make, which I think is fun, which actually helps us out. We're like, uh, you know, because one of the adventures in Roleplay Adventures takes place in Culbic Prison, which Lockup takes place in, and like, um, you know, it, it kind of fuels some of the uh, the history that we're building uh, on the back end. And it, I think the more connections you make, the more real it feels. So, uh, which is, makes it more immersive and more fun for everybody. So, you know. Um, on the timeline, cartographers happens much earlier on the the timeline than um, role player does. So, but like in role player adventures, you know, y- y- your character might have a dream um, where you're back in time and you get to meet Quim- Queen Gimnax, which is like the main character or that is part of the flavor of cartographers. So, like, 
you know, I love making these connections between the different games. And some of them are, are like visual. And I, I, I've said this a couple of times, but like, like there's things on, there's item, there's objects, like there's flare. I don't know how to, like there's little decorations on the lockup board of things that are featured in role player adventures. And this is all kind of like, you know, so I was calling them like forward thinking Easter eggs. Like, yeah. Um, so there's like, like, the, <laughs> like if you look really closely in the cell block space on the board, there's a little one that nobody, I don't know. Most people don't know about this one. Is that underneath one of the beds, you can see like a little triangle of gray. There's like a little piece of a, ch- of a chisel. You can see underneath the bed in the cell block and lock up, which is an item that you get um, in role player adventures in call the prison. And like, there's a bunch of those those little things that I it just it's just fun, right? I love that kind of stuff. It's just like uh, it's just been fun. So yeah, it's, it's it's like those uh, what what I used to really love about certain video games, like say Diablo two, was those secret things that that you find right. w- when you're going around, you know, like secret levels and secret uh, rooms. And I, I really love having it, it's something small, but it just shows that the players feel really good when they figure it out, kinda. It's... Yeah, you, you kind of give the, those players a cool opportunity to like, like if they're really connecting with the material, then they're like, they're, they're you give them they're little puzzles for people to put together or whatever. Um, and I think it shows, I mean, not to like toot my own horn or whatever, but I, I think it shows uh, the care that that people have about their own products, right? So and some of it is because of I, I have a rich video game background, right? So I love back in the day, I loved um, the. Uh, I worked at Konami and I played. I worked on these uh, some of the Swakoden games, the Suikoden. I don't know how to pronounce that word, but there was the first two was PS One, and then the third one uh, and the fourth one were PS Two. But um, the first one, the PS One games, like I loved the fact that like um, you could um, you could the game would like look at the save data from your previous game and import some of that information. So like you could you could move your character from from game to game, which is like. Totally, you can import your character from role player adventures into uh, from role player into role player adventures. It's the same kind of idea. So there's all those those kind of th- things that I I take from my video game background that that slide uh, into to trying to figure out how to apply those things in a in a more physical format. Yeah, that's that's something that we we've been doing as well. Just finding those. I talked to to Shem about about this actually, but yeah, just finding those uh, smaller mechanics and stuff that you can get from like like finding the best parts of of a game that you love and and trying to put it in a different medium is i think something that's that's really interesting 100 percent. anything else you want to say cool. about <laughs> about uh where people can find out more about your games and stuff like that oh sure um obviously www.thunderworksgames.com is my website and you can email me at keith at thunderworksgames.com uh, I'm I'm pretty uh, findable on Facebook and Twitter with a simple search, and I, I tend to be uh, pretty responsive. And I'm Kamateka on Board Game Geek, is which, which uh, I mean, you messaged me there, but like, yeah. Um, I mean, that's another one of my tenants. Like, I I want to treat people the way they want to be treated. Like, the customers are important to me, so I try to be as responsive and, and involved in the things that other people are doing, especially around my games, as I can be. You know. All right, well, thanks a lot for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me.